Good morning. It's great to be back with you after being gone for a week. Uh, My wife and I went back to our Cedarville reunion and uh, had a great time there seeing old friends. Got to see my mom, got to see my daughter, Kate, and uh, just a wonderful time. Uh, It's always great to come back home, though. Thanks to Pastor John for preaching a great message last Sunday. And I invite you to take your Bibles, turn along with me to Romans, the book of Romans, as we begin this morning. Before we launch into that, though, I want to say just a few words. I'm sure your heart was troubled and grieved as mine was as we got the news last weekend of the horrifying attack uh, on Israel by Hamas. Hamas wickedly and cowardly attacked innocent civilians, and it was hard to believe and even harder to watch as it played out on our screens. The depraved worldview and false religion that inspired this attack and even now seeks to justify it is nothing short of satanic. We know that the enemy comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And uh, that is what our great enemy Satan is about in this world. So let's be praying together in these days, in these uncertain days, in these volatile days for the safe return of all the hostages, for these killers and kidnappers to be brought to justice, for the care and safety of innocent Palestinians, who find themselves in harm's way or displaced from their homes during this war, and for the peace of Jerusalem, as our brother Dave prayed already this morning. But most of all, let us pray for many to come to know Jesus Christ as their Messiah and Savior through these tragic events, so that many, many Jews and Arabs and people from every tribe, tongue, nation will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May that be our heart's cry and our prayer in these uncertain days. Well, again, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans if you haven't done so already. This morning we are embarking upon a new series and what is likely to be a pretty lengthy series in the book of Romans. In our study together of this book, we're going to see that it is a treatise on the gospel the good news of the gospel that will take us on a journey from guilt to grace to gratitude. And that's going to kind of serve as the outline, the the big picture outline for this book. God's gospel taking us from guilt to grace to gratitude. Now, through the years, I've preached a number of individual messages from the book of Romans, but I've never taught consecutively through the whole book. In part, that has been intentional. I have wanted to save this study for a time in my ministry and life when I was a bit more experienced and seasoned, both as a pastor and as a preacher of God's Word. Romans has been called very affectionately and respectfully the Mount Everest of Scripture, and for good reason. It is referred to as the Mount Everest of Scripture in part because it's Paul's longest letter, but that's not really the main reason. It's more than that. It is a letter in which Paul most thoroughly and logically and sustainedly lays out and defends the truth of the gospel message. Arguably, Romans stands above all the other books in the biblical horizon for its clear and extensive articulation of glorious gospel realities. 
If you want to know why, Romans comes where it does in the biblical canon, in the arrangement of Scripture, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. It's because of the nature of the book itself. Having come through the life of Jesus Christ and the Acts of the Apostles, the first thing that Christians, as they put the Bible together and arranged its order, wanted people to get was Romans and the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the gospel of God. So it's not placed where it is by accident at all. Thus, the moniker, the Mount Everest of Scripture, is aptly applied. If you aspire to be a mountain climber, it might be best to set your sights on smaller peaks first before tackling Everest. And so that has kind of been my own strategy when it comes to preaching through Paul's letter to the Romans. In other words, why haven't you gotten around to this yet? It's been 26 years. Well, there you go. That's the reason. But now, by God's providence, and I believe by his leading, the time to begin this monumental ascent has finally come. And I'm so glad that you're here along for the journey, that I'm not alone on this climb, that you're tethered in with me. I'm so glad that we'll be climbing together, walking these glorious gospel trails together, for together we will stare down into the dark, bottomless chasms of human depravity and lostness. Together we'll also climb to the heights and gaze over the vast and gloriously limitless vistas of God's grace. So, this morning, let's leave base camp together, tied together with our eyes on the summit, eager to see what God has for us in this magnificent letter. I'm going to read, to begin with, all of Romans chapter 1 this morning to sort of whet your appetite for the rest of the courses of the meal that are to come shortly in the next few months together. So let me read Romans 1, 1 through 32. You follow along there in your Bibles. The Apostle Paul writes, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers making request, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I've planned to come to you and have been prevented so far. 
so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions, for the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, righteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord of of Scripture, Lord of heaven and earth, we have opened your word at this great, majestic book, this letter from Paul to the Romans, and we are humbled before it, for it uh, truly is a great peak on the horizon of, of God's word. We recognize it for what it is, and we ask, Lord, for your help and your aid and your assistance as we seek to understand it, to know it, and to appreciate it. We don't want to know this book just as an academic exercise. We want to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we are no longer conformed after the pattern of this world. We want to see transformation in lives. We want to see unbelievers become believers. We want to see believers grow into maturity, greater and greater maturity. 
Lord, we know that your word is able to bring this about because you use it uniquely. You attend it with your spirit and apply it to our hearts and minds and lives. And we pray that you would be active and present among us throughout this series, but especially in this moment. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we might begin a study of the book of Romans by asking why. Why study a book like Romans? It's almost 2,000 years old. It's written to a culture that no longer exists in the context of an empire that has long fallen. It's filled with complicated words and concepts like righteousness and imputation and redemption and foreknowledge and predestination and election and justification and sanctification and glorification. Of what possible use can these things be to us in our modern age of reason and technology? Surely we've advanced beyond the need for a study of such a letter. Well, the truth is, the book of Romans has changed the world. It has changed the world you and I live in in ways we don't fully perceive. And certainly in ways the world around us, the unbelieving world around us, doesn't perceive. I would argue that no other book has done more in the shaping of the world we live in today than the book of Romans. I would also argue that Romans is the most famous letter ever written. It was the book of Romans, more than any other book, which sparked and fueled the Great Reformation. The Great Reformation, which we try to acknowledge every year around this time for that momentous event in history, and certainly church history, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. It was the book of Romans, more than any other, that caused Martin Luther to realize that he had been on the wrong path, the wrong track. The principles and ideas that flowed out of the Great Reformation continue to make their mark on us today, even if our increasingly secularized society is almost completely unaware of it. You see, it was this one key verse from the book of Romans that helped Martin Luther find salvation and spark the Reformation. Martin Luther, that monk from Germany, was obsessed with the question, how can a sinful person have peace with a holy and righteous God? As a good Roman Catholic, Luther had spent his life and his energies trying and trying to keep the law of God, trying and trying to observe the various sacraments of the Catholic Church. But the more he tried, the more he was overwhelmed with the guilt of his own sinfulness and depravity. This search for peace with God sent him running to the Scriptures, desperate for answers. And while reading the book of Romans, Luther found the answer to his soul's deepest question as he read and reread this one verse. Romans 1, 17. For in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. There Luther realized that it wasn't by works, it wasn't by human efforts, that a person was made right with God and found peace with God, but it was by faith in God and His provision that a person 
had right standing with God. Luther later recounted his conversion experience this way. It was as if the gates of paradise were swung open to me and I was born again. Luther would also say about the book of Romans that this epistle is in truth the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. But Luther isn't alone in seeing the important place of this book of Romans. In the year 386 A.D., Augustine, was converted at the age of 32 by reading from the third chapter of the book of Romans about his own depravity and his own hopelessness outside of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And as a result, Augustine's teaching and theology formed as much by the book of Romans as any other book of Scripture continues to shape the church today. The 17th century English Puritan Thomas Drake said that in the book of Romans we find the quintessence and perfection of saving doctrine. John Calvin said this of Romans, if we gained a true understanding of this epistle, we have an open door to all the most profound treasures in Scripture. Listen to what Christian historian and preacher Steve Lawson has to say about the book of Romans. He says this, If I had my way, every preacher in the world would expound the book of Romans from his pulpit. If I could exert the influence, I would orchestrate every church around the globe to be under the direct influence of the preaching of the book of Romans. If I had the power, I would ensure that every Christian was well-versed in this monumental book. Because Romans is a book that lays out the gospel so clearly and so carefully. It's a book that is essential for unbelievers. It's essential for new believers. And it's essential for mature believers. It's essential for unbelievers, for it will show them how it is that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And that it is the path of salvation and forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thus, many have used what is familiarly known as the Romans road to help introduce others to Jesus Christ and the saving grace of God in the gospel. The Romans Road has long been a helpful evangelistic guide pointing unbelievers to the way of salvation. The Romans Road begins this way in Romans 3.10 as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There on that beginning of this journey down the Roman Road, we realize that we are hopeless and helpless. We're all sinners, condemned, justly because of our rebellion against the God who made us and created us in His image and according to His likeness. That's the bad news of our guilt before a holy God. But the good news of God's grace and love comes next on our journey through the Roman road. Romans 5, 8 said, But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There we are in our sin and our guilt, helpless and hopeless, but God demonstrates, shows, manifests His love toward us and that while we were still sinners, before we'd ever cleaned ourselves up or done anything good or bad, God loved us while we were yet sinners and He died for us. Christ died for us. Romans 6.23, 
reminds us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, what we deserve and earn because of our sin is simply God's just judgment. But what God gives us as a free gift is his, his own son, Jesus Christ, who dies in our place, takes our guilt upon himself, undeservedly receives the wrath of God that our sins deserved. Romans 10, 9 and 10 then gives us this promise that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. The glorious truth of the gospel is, yes, though we were sinners, yes, though we were destined for destruction, God, while we were still sinners, in his love, sent his son, Jesus Christ, to take our place in our sin and our judgment upon himself on the cross. Jesus rose from the grave. And now God offers salvation, eternal life, and forgiveness of sin to all who will simply believe, trusting in Jesus Christ alone to forgive them of their sins. But the book of Romans is not just for unbelievers. It's for believers too. It's for both new believers and mature believers. New believers and mature believers will find their faith nurtured and strengthened by a study of the book of Romans. You see, the gospel, as outlined in the book of Romans, is not just a Christian starting point from which we quickly move on to more important matters. No, the gospel is fundamental to the whole Christian life. We don't simply begin with the gospel and then move on. We begin our Christian life with the gospel. We continue our Christian life by the gospel. And by God's grace, we will finish our Christian life in this world by the gospel. And so, a study of the book of Romans is a study in the gospel. And a study in the gospel will reap rich rewards. Rich rewards to an unbeliever who needs to hear the saving message of the gospel. Rich rewards to the fledgling Christian who needs to understand better where they've come from and what God has truly done for them. And rich rewards for the mature believer who can never fully plumb the depths of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. Now I want to share a few things with you that I think will be helpful as we walk our way through this rich letter. We're going to be using a simple outline as we go through. It's the subtitle of the title for the book of Romans, which is on the screen behind me. Romans will share with us God's gospel that will take us on a journey from guilt to grace to gratitude. Guilt, grace, gratitude, a three-point outline for the book of Romans. Now, this outline is not original to me. I didn't make this up. In fact, it's quite old. It dates back as far as 1563 and the first publishing of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is actually, surprisingly, the fourth most circulated book in the world. Christian catechisms were helpful teaching tools to churches and pastors. These catechisms summarized Christian doctrine through a series of questions. So there's the very well-known Westminster Shorter Catechism with the famous question, first question, 
What is the chief end of man? Anybody know it? What is the chief end of man? Wow, you guys have been catechized, at least on question one. Well done. Then there are other catechisms, like Luther's smaller catechism or his large catechism. But the Heidelberg Catechism is probably best known for its first question, which has been quoted in a song that we sing regularly here, Christ our hope in life and death. Let me read to you the question that is the first question in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has faithfully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. But the Heidelberg Catechism is somewhat unique in that after the first two questions, it follows the book of Romans as a general outline for its questions and answers. And it follows these three broad points of guilt, grace, and gratitude, though not using those words explicitly. Now listen to question two of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one is, what is your only comfort in life and death? And of course, it's Jesus Christ. Question two, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? In other words, question one, what is my only comfort in life and death? Question two, how can I know that I have this comfort? How can I make this comfort mine? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are, guilt. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery, grace. And thirdly, how I am to thank God for such deliverance, gratitude. Grace, guilt rather, grace and gratitude. Our guilt before God is seen in chapters 1 through 3. You're going to see the outline on the screen behind me. Our guilt before God is seen in chapters 1 through 3 as Paul explains how we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Next, Paul shares the good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ in chapters 4 through 11. Spends a lot of time on that. Finally, in chapters 12 through 16, Paul shares with us the realities of our new life in Christ that are seen in the many fruits of gratitude for all that God has done for us in giving us His Son, Jesus. Now, it's always helpful when seeking to read and study a book of the Bible to understand a bit of its background. So I'm going to share in the coming minutes here some of the important background material, background details that will help us better understand and interpret this letter. The Apostle Paul is the author. This is made clear in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. There's really no serious scholarly challenge to Paul's authorship of this book. It's also clear how this letter ends that Paul used an amanuensis or a scribe or a secretary in the process of writing this book, which was totally customary for the time. You would often dictate your letters speaking 
and the person would hear you and they would write down the words that you're saying. Paul dictated this letter to a man named Tertius. Romans 16, 22. We have this little hello moment for Tertius in the middle of the Paul's closing chapter here. He says, I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. You say, well, wait a minute. He says he, says he wrote the letter. So who, which is it? Is it Paul or is it Tertius? Well, Paul is the one from which the, all the words are originating, and Tertius is the one writing the words down. Paul dictated the letter to Tertius. Tertius faithfully wrote down the words that Paul spoke. Paul writes this letter around the year 57 AD, near the end of his third missionary journey, just before his return to Jerusalem with gifts, monetary gifts that he'd collected from the various Gentile churches he was connected to, bringing these gifts back to Jerusalem, which would help and aid them as they're going through a terrible famine at the time. Paul is very likely writing this letter during his three-month layover in Greece that's mentioned in Acts chapter 20 and verse 3, probably while Paul was staying in the city of Corinth. Now, why do we think Paul was writing in Corinth? Well, there's some internal evidence that seems to indicate that. In chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, he mentions this woman named Phoebe, who's from Centrea, a seaport that is adjacent to Corinth, and she would be the one who would be hand-delivering this letter to the Romans in person as she traveled from Centrea near Corinth all the way to Rome to deliver this letter. She's mentioned in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. Paul also mentions in this closing chapter, chapter 16, a man by the name of Gaius with whom he is staying. Chapter 16, verse 23, who's very likely the same Gaius who was one of only two Christians that Paul ever baptized in Corinth. So Paul is staying in Corinth with Gaius who sends greetings in this letter to the people back in Rome. Finally, Paul mentions a city treasurer named Erastus who sends his greetings to the Roman Christians. He's mentioned in chapter 16, verse 23 as well, who is very likely the same Erastus who is identified in Corinth as the city commissioner. And you can travel to Corinth today and you can see the inscription on, uh, on the street. It's an inscription that says uh, this street was built by the kind donation of Erastus, who was the city commissioner. And uh, I traveled back there. You all sent me there several years ago. Thankfully, a, a two-way ticket, so a return trip as well. <laughs> Appreciate that. And got to see this inscription and kind of geeked out over that. So anyway, it's likely that Paul is writing all of this from Corinth. So Paul is writing from Corinth around 57 AD near the end of his third missionary journey. There are three locations that are very significant to the Apostle Paul that seem to come up again and again in the book of Romans. And so I want to talk for a moment about these three locations, Jerusalem, Spain, and Rome. Jerusalem, Spain, and Rome. Turn with me to Romans 15. Romans 15. These three geographic locations that are important to understanding the book of Romans a bit. Romans 15, 22. Paul says there, For this reason I have often been prevented from coming to you, Romans, 
to see you, to visit you, to be in person with you, Romans. So there's Rome, okay? But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I have had for many years a longing to come to you in Rome, whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you, when I have first enjoyed your company for a while, but now I'm going to Jerusalem serving the saints. So Jerusalem is where Paul is headed immediately. Next, when he leaves Greece, when he leaves Corinth, he's going to go to Jerusalem. That's where he's going to go. He'll be delivering a financial gift from these Gentile Christians to the suffering Jewish saints there. While he's in Jerusalem, Paul also knows that he's going to need to defend himself while he's there. Defend his gospel message, defend his gospel ministry primarily to the Gentiles. For there were those in Jerusalem who were making false accusations against the apostle, saying that he taught a different gospel, saying that his ministry was invalid because he was uh, ignoring the Old Testament, that he was ignoring circumcision and other things. And so in Romans 15.30, Paul says this, Romans 15.30, Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. Pray for me, Paul says. I'm about to go to Jerusalem and I need your prayers that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. He's talking about Jerusalem there. Those who are disobedient, the Judaizers, the people that were opposed to the apostle, to his message, and to his mission to the Gentiles. And then he says, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. So as Paul is writing the letter to Romans, on his mind is the fact that he's going to be standing before, if you will, a kind of tribunal, and he's going to be examined on what he believes and what his practices are among the Gentiles. And so he's taking this opportunity as he prepares immediately to go to Jerusalem to write out all that he believes about the gospel and about the, Jew, the relationship between Jew and Gentile and God's saving, redemptive plan for Jew and Gentile. So it's on his mind. He's writing to the Romans. He wants them to be built up in the gospel. He wants to prepare himself for what he's going to face in Jerusalem. And that is all what's going on in the apostle's mind as he, as he dictates this letter and as it's written down. Now, that's Rome. That's Jerusalem. Now what about Spain? Spain is Paul's ultimate destination. Jerusalem is his immediate destination, but Spain is his ultimate destination. And this is Paul's missionary heart coming through here. He wants to take the gospel westward. westward. He has spent 25 years spreading the gospel in the eastern parts. Now he wants to travel west where the gospel hasn't gone yet. He wants to take the gospel to where No one has laid a foundation yet. He wants to go to Spain. And so on his way to Spain, Paul plans a layover in Rome. Rome's a nice place to lay over, you know? And Paul wants to spend some time there and be with these Roman Christians, seeking their encouragement, seeking to encourage them as well, seeking their prayers, and seeking their financial support for his mission to Spain. In preparation for his visit among them, Paul writes this letter to these Roman Christians hoping to unite them around the gospel. This church was experiencing some fractures. 
This church was experiencing some tension internally, and Paul is hoping that the gospel, laid out as clearly and carefully as he has done so here in Romans, will help unite them around the gospel message. Now, Rome, of course, was the capital of the Roman Empire. At this time, Rome had a population of about a million people, one million people, all living in or near the city that was about 10 square miles. At this point in his life, Paul had, as far as we know, never been to Rome. It certainly seems to be the case that he indicates that. He makes clear to us not only in chapter 15 that he hasn't been there, but also, as we read earlier, in chapter 1 and verse 13. He says this, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you. I've wanted to come many times, but circumstances prevented it. So that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I've wanted to come, but haven't been able to thus far. So unlike many of Paul's letters, Paul is not writing to a church here that he has founded, that he has planted, or that he has even visited. He's not been any part of it, really. Some traditions claim that the Apostle Peter or the Apostle Peter and Paul planted the church in Rome, but this doesn't square with the historical record. Peter can't be placed in Rome early enough to tie him to the founding of the church there. Likewise, in a letter written to Rome, at the conclusion of this letter, in chapter 16, Paul mentions 20 plus names to send greetings to, but he never mentions Peter, which would be Highly weird for Paul not to mention Peter, who's supposedly the planting pastor of this church. Furthermore, the early church father, Ambrosiaster, writing in the 4th century, is probably correct in stating that the Roman Christians have embraced the faith of Christ without seeing any sign or mighty works or any of the apostles. So this Roman church sort of grew up organically without the presence of one of the apostles or their close associates, without miracles or signs and wonders to attest to the validity and veracity of the message of the gospel. It's just kind of grown up organically. But what was the, what was the origin of it? How did it begin? Well, best we can tell is it began on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 and verse 10 tells us that there, right after the uh, ascension of Jesus to the right hand of the Father, on the day of Pentecost, there were a number of folks there from different regions, different areas, different countries, different languages who heard Peter preach the gospel, and they all heard it in their own tongue. And among them were visitors, Jewish visitors from Rome. Having heard the gospel, they likely repented and believed on Jesus Christ and then returned home to Rome, shared the truth of Jesus Christ in their local Jewish synagogues. And more and more Jews and a few Gentile God-fearers would have heard it and believed. And so Christianity in Rome likely began then with a Jewish emphasis and with Jewish leadership. But then something happened which dramatically changed the complexion of the church in Rome. In 49 AD, under Emperor Claudius, 
a large number of Jews were expelled from Rome because there were some riots about this man named Christus. That's what Claudius says. But in fact, it's probably a misspelling of the name Christus, Christ. There was an argument between Christian Jews and non-believing Jews about who the Messiah was and whether Jesus was the Messiah. And some of these unbelieving Jews became angry and so Claudius just said, okay, out with you. Leave Rome. You're, you're upsetting the Pax Romana. And so there was a great diaspora of Jews that were turned away from Rome. Acts 18.2 mentions this expulsion of Jews from Rome. Among those who were expelled from Rome at the time were Aquila and Priscilla. Those names should ring a bell to you. These were early Christians Jewish Christians who set themselves up in Corinth, having been expelled from Rome, they settled in Corinth as tent makers, and that is where Paul, a fellow Christian and tent maker, met them and stayed with them. And they enjoyed great fellowship together and ministry together. Aquila and Priscilla eventually returned to Rome, and Paul greets them in this letter in Acts chapter, or sorry, Romans chapter 16, verses 3 and 4. He says, Greet Prisca and Aquila. Pr- Prisca is short for Priscilla, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risk their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. In other words, I couldn't have done it without them. Now, this expulsion of Jews from Rome resulted in what was likely a significant power shift within the church at Rome. So the church in Rome, having started as being very Jewish-centered, being Jew-led, Christian Jewish leaders, suddenly there's a a great brain drain. There's a great uh, expulsion of all these Jewish leaders and Jewish thinkers, and the leadership of the church is wiped out, basically. And so the Gentiles step forward, and it becomes to have a more Gentile complexion, the church at Rome. Now, this turns out to be a significant historical detail, which is helpful, I think, for understanding the local situation to which Paul writes. The Gentile believers and the Jewish believers were experiencing strife and tension among them. The Gentiles were failing to rightly value the historical background and God's plan of redemption to take the gospel to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, to the Gentile. They were failing to value that. And so they were undervaluing their Jewish brothers and sisters. And they were failing to take into account the Jewish scruples about certain observations of holy days and new moons and Sabbaths and same things like that. And the Gentiles were running roughshod over them. And so that was creating tensions. And that's part of the issue that Paul is wanting to write to. And he wants to center them around and increase their unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as I bring things to a conclusion for this morning, there are at least four goals that the apostle has in writing this letter to the Romans, all right? And that's what I want to leave you with today. Four aims or goals that the apostle Paul has in writing this letter to the Romans. And these four aims or goals that Paul had in writing to the Romans serve us well as being four great goals for us as we study this letter together. What do we want to see the Lord do in us, to us, 
as a result of studying this letter together. And I want to share these four goals, all right? First of all, the goal of gospel-grounded unity. To ground the church in unity together. Now, Paul is writing primarily to the Gentile Christians of the Roman church here. Not exclusively. He's including the Jews at different points, but clearly he has in mind the majority, the Jewish, or sorry, the Gentile majority of the church at Rome. This growing tension and division between these majority Gentile Christians and the minority Jewish Christians is one of Paul's primary concerns and one of the primary purposes in writing this letter. His hope is to unify them together through the gospel so that they would be able to worship together in unity as God intended. Look with me at Romans 15 again. Romans 15, 5 and 6. It's one of the theme verses of our church. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement, Romans 15, 5, grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, according to the gospel. Be unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ so that you may worship God as he deserves to be worshiped. And we can't fully do that if we're not united together around the gospel. If we're not giving practical expression to that unity through our praise and song. This gospel-grounded unity would not only result in greater and purer worship of God, but it would also help make them more effective in their service to the Lord and in their support of missions, particularly Paul's mission to Spain. He knows that if he shows up and he's got a divided church over this and that and every little issue, it's going to be really hard for him to leave there expeditiously it's going to be really hard for him to raise support to fund the ministry that the Lord has placed on his heart unity was a pressing need and the gospel was the cure unity is still a pressing need in the church today society is marked by divisions of every kind I mean just in this room alone, we all come from different, different sides of the tracks. We all come from different backgrounds. We all have different economic challenges and economic opportunities. We've had different educational levels. We've, we've had different parenting. And we express different parenting styles now. All of it. We're all different. And the danger is, is that those differences would begin to show themselves as fissures and cracks among us. And we would lack the unity that we're supposed to have around the common commitment to the gospel which has saved us all. Though our walks of life are far different from each other, the gospel is that which unifies us. And that's what Paul's seeking to do, is unite the church around the gospel. And that's what I'm praying that God will do among us. We are a pretty united church as it is. You can always grow in unity. You can always grow in oneness of mind. You can always grow in having one voice and one heart lifted up in praise to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Second goal. The goal of gospel-centered orthodoxy. Gospel-centered orthodoxy. In many ways, Paul is presenting in this letter his bona fides. He is sharing with the Roman church and anyone else who might read this letter the biblical basis of his belief system and his understanding of how both Jew and Gentile fit into God's redemptive plan. Romans is not a systematic theology. For in Romans, Paul does not cover every category of theology. There are some categories that receive almost no attention whatsoever. So Paul's purpose is not to lay out everything he believes about everything. His purpose is to lay out the truth of the gospel and demonstrate how this gospel ministry to the Gentiles was keeping was perfectly in keeping with the Old Testament promise of blessing to the nations through the gospel promised to Abraham. That through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. And one of the ways that they'd be blessed is by the gospel going to them. It would go to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile. Paul's goal in writing Romans is to help anchor the Roman Christians and give an opportunity for him to state forthrightly his gospel-centered orthodoxy. Orthodoxy must always begin at the gospel. If we get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter how accurate our theology of God is. We'll still be going to hell because we got the gospel wrong. If we get the gospel wrong, it doesn't matter what our eschatology is. You'll still be going to hell because you got the gospel wrong. Orthodoxy must always begin and be centered upon and connected to the gospel. So Paul is seeking to establish them and communicate gospel-centered orthodoxy. Thirdly, the goal of gospel-informed orthopraxy. So we got orthodoxy, right belief, orthopraxy, right conduct. Paul is determined in this letter not to present the gospel as some kind of esoteric truth to be affirmed, but that doesn't change your life in any way. Like some meaningless assignment you had to do in school that you've never given any more thought to and didn't affect you one way or the other. The gospel is not like that. The gospel changes us. The gospel gets inside of us. It transforms us. And we become new creations. New creatures. Oh, the gospel is vibrant. The gospel is life-giving, life-changing, life-transforming. I mean, just look at how Paul shares this truth. He, he labors the point of our guilt in chapters 1 through 3, and then he transitions to God's grace in chapters 4 through 11. And as he comes to the end of laying out God's gracious plan of salvation through his sending of his son, Jesus Christ, as he comes to the end of chapter 11, he's overwhelmed and overcome with praise. And that praise, though, immediately moves into practice. Look at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, given all that I've said about God's grace and how he's 
rescued us and ransomed us from our sin and our guilt and the judgment we deserve. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the gospel is not intended to be something that we put on a shelf something that we study every now and then, something that we think about occasionally. The gospel is for everyday life and the gospel has the power to transform us each and every day, to make us new, to make us more like Jesus, make us fit for service. The gospel informs our lives and changes us from the inside out. The church today still stands in need of this kind of transformation. I today stand in this kind of, in need of this kind of transformation. Fourthly and finally, the goal of gospel-fueled doxology. Goal of gospel-fueled doxology. This is Paul's greatest aim and purpose in writing this letter, to see people overwhelmed with awe and wonder and gratitude for the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Again, that's how he ends chapter 11. Having laid out the gospel of Jesus Christ, he's moved himself to worship. He says this in Romans 11 at the very end of the the grace section. He says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who, who became his counselor or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul himself, as he dictates this to Tertius, is moved to wonder, love, and praise as he contemplates the glorious truth of the gospel and the rescue that it's meant in his own life. And then fast forward with me to the end of Romans, Romans 16. Let's look at to see how the letter ends. It ends on doxology. Romans 16, 25. Having said everything, Paul ends it all this way. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that's been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to the obedience of faith, to the only wise God, through Jesus Christ, be the glory forever. Amen. The ultimate purpose of this letter, and really of all the scriptures, is to lead us to wonder, love, and praise of our great God, who sent his beloved son, Jesus Christ, to ransom us, to save us, to deliver us from the wrath that is to come. How can you escape a holy and righteous God who has promised to judge every sin by receiving in faith the gift of grace that is his son, Jesus Christ, who died in our place and gave himself for us all. Let's pray together. 
Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the satisfaction of God's righteous demands on our behalf. You satisfied them on the cross. You were that scapegoat. You were that sacrificial lamb that brought atonement. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending Jesus on our behalf. Thank you for loving us while we were still sinners. Thank you for your grace and mercy, which is so put on display in this marvelous book. Help us to plumb its depths and see its heights and appreciate its expanse. Grow us in the gospel, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.